0: You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This 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 is is The hour. Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour.
1: With Resident Advisor.
0: Hi, I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews, and lots of other things besides. This month, I'm here to bring you two stories, One from the U.S. as Kerry Chandler hits the streets of New York, giving us a tour of the city and showing us the spots that have been vital to his career and influenced his recent DJ Kicks mix. And one from the U.K. as London DJ Moxie sets out to explore the ways in which DJs organise their music.
2: You're listening to The Hour from Resident Advisor.
3: Hello and welcome along. It's Moxie here. I'm a DJ based in London, and some of you might know me from my radio show on NTS, or the club night and label I run called On Loop. Generally speaking, I'm someone who's fairly organised, but when it comes to staying on top of my music downloads, preparing for radio and my weekend gigs, I find it overwhelming to remember everything I've downloaded and then where and how to organise it. I'm also someone who's a bit dyslexic, and visual pointers for me have always been key. This is something else I find really fascinating in the music industry, as a lot of my mates who are still on vinyl stay that way because, for example, they can't ever remember the name of a record. But if you ask them to describe the sleeve, they could tell you in exact detail. Originally, I started with records, then moved on to Serato, and now I'm on Record Box. I've tried a bunch of ways to organise my music, but still, I feel like maybe there are other ways I could be doing it better. So for the next 30 minutes, I catch up with some of my DJ friends, including Avalon Emerson, B Traits, Errol Alkin, and Bicep, who we kick off with first. It was actually Matt and Andy from Bicep who got me thinking about doing this podcast, as they were the ones giving me a bunch of tips a few years back, when I was starting to make the move onto Recordbox. I'm with Bicep now. I'm in their studio that they've just moved into. They're currently in the stages of organising. There's a lot of cables everywhere but you guys are getting into it. You're labelling all your cables.
1: Yeah, patch bays, all the madness. Getting the solder in our night. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's looking good. You guys have been super busy touring so much uh, with the album. So I suppose taking all of that into account, when you're so busy, you're working on your live show, you're trying to prepare for DJ shows. How do you guys go about organising your music?
4: We buy records a lot still. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll buy like a load of stuff off discogs and record shops we'll just let them sit in the corner the studio and build and build and build and build and once or every once every month once every two months we do a ripping day and we just rip absolutely everything limit compress it um fix them up and then get them into a big folder with all our new music and then we have um a way of organizing our music because there's two of us we used to sort of have you know folders that were like october but it was a total mess and you could someone would yeah. put in a load of techno tracks and you'd see something and it'd be like you know 15 minutes into your set and Andy'd be playing disco and then I'd accidentally play a techno <laughs> promo and be like, whoa, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> so um, we're now a lot more organised in the sense that we we, we, we kind of like do it based on the kind of feeling of the music.
3: I remember you mentioning before um, you, you might have like a Robert Johnson folder yeah, or a panorama yeah, yeah. So bar folder I mean specifically. Kind
4: of feelings and themes and that the Robert Johnson folder isn't actually for Robert Johnson. It's more what we think of when we the think of Robert of that, Johnson. Yeah. So you think of this sort of like ten minute sort of like really like a motive sort of like you know kind of girl janseny tracks and kinda of can go on and you know really nice sort of like when the sun's coming up and so that will be put down into like a Robert Johnson folder but it might also go into our like warm-up synth folder. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like kinda of way of like to us it, it seems really organised
3: so you guys obviously you share everything but how, how are you doing that do you have a, a link Dropbox folder do you do it via iTunes if you're constantly putting stuff back and
1: forth everything goes onto this computer our studio computer and from that we've got we put everything in Rekordbox and then we sync it to USBs so all the folders basically we have it all in iTunes and that's where we put all our playlists and then from that we sync certain folders to our USBs for certain nights by the way there are probably about 15 of our
4: USBs floating around the UK at the minute.
3: <laughs> yeah. how, many, how many have you lost? Oh,
4: like, I mean, it's one a month, two or th- one or two a month. But we also, like, the album, like, so many of the album demos were lost a year oh, before no. the album. <laughs> uh, I, lo-
1: I lost the whole album with, well, I did pan around before, I just didn't even mention it. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh like, we, we,
4: we, 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 with the album stuff, we don't label it
1: anything to a bicep. We give them, like, weird names. Yeah. I, had, I had the Ableton oh, files on that USB. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't even think about it.
3: Oh, God. Have you had that before going and playing a set because I remember Fort Ramo telling me a story how uh, he has the same the same stick but he'll have six of them and he'll carry them around yeah, yeah, the so same we, stick, we do, like we, with we, him because he's that dropped that. them on the floor like yeah. through a crack in the floor yeah. just before he's about to go we, on
4: we even have the record box our, our whole record box taken offline in a zip folder available on dropbox so if we did lose them all on tour we could just go and buy usb and quickly get them
1: like i mean that last tour we in in korea we only have one usb left by the end by the end <laughs> like I <it> was like <laughs> and we weren't even djing that much and we were still playing live
3: <laughs> how do you how do you familiarize yourself though because i get so overwhelmed with the amount of digital stuff so when i'm downloading music and i'm putting it into folders i'm like okay i'm going to play this or yeah i'm going to potentially play that and if i haven't had a chance to maybe go through on the cdjs or like maybe look in the back end of record box when i go to play a gig sometimes I'm just thinking oh, I can't remember how that goes or a yeah, bit yeah, like yeah. wait a minute or if you haven't got the new CDJs where you can properly you know like scroll through super quick like do you ever think oh maybe I'm not gonna play that actually because I haven't had time to, to get Some- used to sometimes, it sometimes like yeah. I'll
1: listen through tracks when Matt's playing one so I'll have it you know I'll have four CD decks and one will be playing the tune I want to know how it ends I'll be like yeah. okay this ends and beats what's that end like and yeah, so a lot a of t- a lot of times we kind of take Little parts, so I'll take like four tunes that I kind of know, or I've added in that week, and then Matt'll take the new ones he've, he's done, or he'll advise me. He'll be like, "Oh no, this one ends in beats, so this one ends, and like you're not gonna mix that one into that. That's not gonna work." Yeah, <laughs> I suppose it is. De- it's definitely handy having two because, in that sense,
4: tw- two people DJing is very difficult to get. Like it it can be a disaster very often because there's just two people going different directions but we've kind of spent a lot of time trying to like find a way and Defy we try to go one for one usually if we're we're really comfortable with we kind of know all the records we're one for one but certainly if we had a big promo dig it'll be like you do five tracks and you do five tracks it's up to you to make sure you're five work you know what i mean yeah. and sort of like and there'll definitely be times where like oh no that clanged or you know oh no, yeah 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 like, yeah. Yeah. like
1: <laughs> yeah that one turned into techno track and like <laughs> <Esco> <laughs> it, still, it still happens but
4: i think definitely it happens less now i mean again kind of trying to break down like having all that variation but then having those sort of three folders that we kind of get to know really well every month then that kind of like definitely means it whilst you may have like you know, 50 gig of music, you actually are only dealing with like one.
5: Yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's get into it. (laughs) Let me show you my playlist, girl. Let's check it out.
3: (laughs) Up next, we have the queen of technical skills, Avalon Emerson. We played together not too long ago and got deep on how she organizes her music. I wanted to know more about the process after she imports a track on her computer to actually playing it out.
5: Yeah, say I have an AIFF that I want to play and import. I have like a kind of a two stage, like an inbox that I throw everything into and so that I can go through that when I'm on the plane or wherever. And then I dump everything into a DJ library folder and then import that into Recordbox. record box. And <laughs> I guess the main two ways that when I'm DJing, I browse my USBs is through a like a per night gig playlist and then um, through my other kind of like browsing tree based on styles, functions, um, I have like a new folder that um, splits everything up based from when, at what point did I import it into Recordbox?
3: Because there are many different levels to when you were telling me about how you, you break everything up.
5: I definitely haven't found the correct way and so I kind of use a varyingly weighted multiple like yeah m- multiple ways of going at things and Still haven't found the perfect thing. Obviously,
3: I'm surprised you say that because I was like, really impressed with with how organized you were, and even just going back to your your desktop, the way that you have um, everything is linked on on Dropbox, right? And then you have That's that right. backed up. That's onto right. the Cloud. Yeah. Just in case there's any problems. Exactly. Which is
5: so smart. That that single DJ library folder is all um, on Dropbox. So, and if somebody you know rips my laptop out of my hands or you know my studio computer (laughs) completely blows up then I still have all the actual files and then every so often in RecordBox, I export the library so that I can you know import the entire taxonomy of the catalogue into any random computer.
3: Yeah it's it's such a good idea I think uh, I definitely need to um, to start doing stuff like that <laughs> rather than just walking around with one USB stick. Um, the thing that I was really interested by and I'm still sort of trying to get my head around as well is the intelligent playlists and how you break up uh, your tracks. So that like, every track you import, uh, you put tags on, right? So you'd say you sort of work out exactly where you want it to go, like ha- house music or acid or techno or, or something a bit more variable than that.
5: Yeah, that's what I attempt to do, because before I had um, just normal playlists that I would like manually drag things into. After a while, I would kind of forget either what the signifiers were for those playlists, or I would forget about the playlists entirely. And so they would kind of like mutate and change meaning, and it would be more and more useless to me. And so now what I do is I just listen to a song. And then I qualify it based on these like tags that I have created myself. And a song can be multiple of these tags and they're not like mutually exclusive. So like something can be breaky and acidy and techno. And based on all these things that I am tagging with, then there are intelligent playlists that are different uh, combinations of all of those tags. Um, and then basically, it's just really easy for me. It's like a low uh, cost of energy when I can like import something and then be like, "Is this a techno-y song? Is this a Breaky song? Is this an acid song? And so I just click and like tag it based on what it is to me. And then um, and then it flies into the intelligent playlist the new uh mark II sd xdjs and the new cdjs they have uh these like tag filtering things too which is really cool and they basically you can create these intelligent playlists like kind of what i create but on the fly check a bunch of check marks based on your record box my tags that thing and then it'll filter out everything that you okay have you're setting up a bunch of like boolean Uh, rules, essentially, like logic rules, and then everything that fits those rules will show up in your thing. So that's pretty cool on the brand, on the super new ones. This is what
3: I mean, Avalon. You're you're so tech. You know so many different levels. I just really
5: love machines and I think that these this technology, it's like these CDJs are so expensive. It's like they must be doing some shit, or, sorry for cursing but like they must be doing some valuable stuff like might as well learn what it is.
3: You use the CDJs like they're an instrument, you know, the way that I was watching you when you were doing it, looping stuff up, dropping it on the beat, bringing things in and out.
5: I used to make so many edits and I still do but you can kind of do all of that stuff on CDJs now. And yeah, just be m- more precise about what you want to do with the parts of the song that you want. And yeah, setting up uh, hot cues with different portions of the song. And um, yeah, you can, you yeah, you kind of, can- it's cheesy. To- I feel like people have been using that dumb catchphrase of like, you can make a re, you can remix your tracks live with this new DJ gear. Like you kind of can now actually. <laughs> and- Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to do. So I I do like that, doing that.
3: Someone who's contributed massively to the music scene as we know it is Errol Alkin. He's been DJing in clubs way before dance music was seen as something popular. As a mainstay of the industry, I wanted to hear how Errol's developed with music as it's become digitalized, and how he organises his records. Hi, Errol. Hi. Hi. Um, thanks so much for welcoming us into your home studio here. No problem. Currently surrounded by loads of records, loads of magazines, um, CDs. There's a lot of stuff in here. I think it's fair to say you've got a pretty extensive archive. I mean, it seems that there is some kind of system going on here.
6: Yeah, yeah, there is a system. Vinyl wise, it's kind of grouped into how I would term music's genre or perhaps even like a time period of when records, or I would associate a a time with those records. So, kind of here is a lot of like the alternative indie guitar music, a lot of kind of 80s records above it. Discos over there. Um, There's a lot of kind of unofficial re-edit style 12s all kind of grouped together from a particular era but there is also a similar type of record from a different era over there. So I I know where everything is. If I was to kind of tell or ask someone to find something for me, I could probably give them pretty basic instructions and they might be able to find them themselves as well. So it's not not chaotic. There is a kind of order to it. Um, There are more records than these as well but some are in the attic and those are ones that I probably haven't had to kind of go towards for a while but um, it's not to say that I wouldn't go through them now at all.
3: Do you miss that element of, um, of pretty much solely playing out records? Because I know with you, with, with Trash and all your the residencies that you had uh, at that that era, I suppose that's when DJs were really starting to become a thing. You know, it's like the sort of the DJ of the night. And um, I know that you would pretty much only play out records and, and actually and tapes, you were saying, I think.
6: Yeah, uh, really early on. I mean, this is going back to like 1993, um, perhaps. When I first started DJing, it was not just vinyl, but also CD, um, but also cassette as well. Because you know, back then, being you know seventeen years old, I, I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford to buy music all the time, so I was borrowing records from the library and recording them onto. Cassette. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Used to go to like Archway Library or Islington Library. Since Box happened, I've kind of gone fully towards that. I've played vinyl sporadically like after that and then only in a full set recently where I went back to back uh, with Boys Noise at one of the residency nights where we just played vinyl only. I was slightly sceptical about moving totally into a digital zone because I've always had a strong association with vinyl and sleeves and you know all those kind of things that would inspire you you know when you're playing. Going into something that felt far more regimented as Rekordbox. I was really kind of slightly, I was slightly intimidated even, you know, because I felt I was constantly peering into a machine. But then after you, you realise that once you have a proper understanding of it, you feel how liberating it is. I also use mixed in key as well. So I write all the, um, I write what key a track is in.
3: But then doesn't that happen in Rekordbox already?
6: It does. Rekordbox can write it in as to say if it's in like B flat or whatever, C sharp, Um, but I use the Camelot system, which is the numerical with the A B system. So I write all that information in with mixed in key. Then from there, uh, I kind of go through it twice again, listen back to those records just to make sure I'm not liking something for the wrong reasons. And then bring that into record box, and then usually there'll be like a crate, which will be the most like the latest records that are coming into my system. But from there, it then gets siphoned off into specific genres, or however I would view a, a, a record genre-wise. That's my kind of intuitive sense as to what I'd be looking for. The one thing I love um, when I'm DJing is is when you kind of feel that. What I could do with right now is this type of record and then you can go into that folder and then automatically arrange it by key as well because I know I'll be playing in, you know, the key of E or something like that and then I can then find another record which, if you can make that mix work, will create a great moment on the floor, you know. So there's all those elements as well.
3: And in terms of the visual element of of record sleeves and and being able to identify you know each record as soon as you see it is that something that you've tried to pull over into Recordbox? is that artwork you know a lot of people import the artwork so that when they're skipping through it makes it less overwhelming is that something that you've you've thought about writing notes to yourself as well
6: yeah I um, at first I really thought the artwork would be a really big deal to have that inside of Box, but it, it, it doesn't mean anything to me inside of Recordbox that much Um, outside of it, I'm still, you know, a huge fan of the whole culture of music and artwork and everything that goes with it. But I think now I'm kind of, you know, I kind of probably have more of an attachment with the music, uh, just broken down to its title and knowing what the music sounds like and what it, what it evokes and what key it's in, what BPM it's in, that information ahead of the artwork, um, but that's really come from disciplining myself to listening to a lot of the records that I play, a like lot to know them well.
3: Here's BBC Radio 1's B Traits, with how she made the move onto Recordbox from Serato and her unique approach to colour coding.
7: I'm not gonna lie, I really don't miss the laptop. I don't miss having the laptop screen there. Like I'd be staring at a computer screen instead of engaging in the crowd more. And you can kind of see where like certain beats line up and you would almost rely on the visual aspect rather than your own ears. It was really nice to let go of the screen and kind of just take a step back.
3: Although one thing I will say that I did quite like um, with Serato in terms of, you know, when you just forget about a track, yeah, I cannot remember yeah. what that track is. But sometimes oh, the I would search function, yeah, <laughs> with record books,
7: You really have to organize. You can shit. be like twiddling that thing forever, trying to look yeah. for a record. Yeah, that's one of my reoccurring nightmares: is is doing that on a CDJ and the other track running out. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just forever looking for this one track that you can't find. Like I seriously still have the nightmare at least once a month. Like I think every DJ has it, that reoccurring nightmare that like the track's gonna run out and then everyone is just in the audience like what is happening? Turn the music back on. I mean actually that did happen to me recently at um, <laughs> oh on God. Boiler Room. <laughs> my first, my Boiler Room oh, debut. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the track didn't run out but the music cut out and everyone was just staring at me at, at like, w- like turn it on. Like it's, what are you doing? Turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrendous. <laughs> oh
3: God, oh. yeah, I really feel for you in that situation. So how did you make the move when you were on Serato? You obviously you had a way that you were organizing all your music, yeah. and then when you moved it onto Rekordbox, did you do the same format? Did you switch stuff up?
7: I mean, I was doing everything for my radio show as well, like preparing for the show and the mixes and stuff with Serato. Um, and I'd never used Rekordbox before, but I knew that I wanted to to let go of the laptop aspect in a gig scenario. Um, so I kind of moved everything over to Rekordbox at one time. And I think I, I do it quite similarly now, except how I had organized it before in Serato was using the colors, so um, uh, color as an energy level. So if something was like a really high energy track, uh, quite dark, quite heavy, it would be bright red. And then um, moving down from there would be like orange and yellow would be really fun records. Um, Still pretty fast, still pretty high energy, but um, less uh, banging, let's say. Um, You know, there's like tougher techno and then there's sort of the lighter music, more musical stuff. And then those would be like pink and purple. And then um, also kind of ranging with BPM, like the, the slower stuff would be like light blues and greens. Yeah. Um, I don't do that as much anymore with Record Box because, um, like, really, I just I haven't found the time to like yeah. properly organize <laughs> it, which I'm hating myself for because I I love being really anal like that and having everything super organized. Um, but now what I do in Record Box is I actually use the rating, the star rating function. So instead, it's the same thing, it's just instead of using the colors, I'm just using like either one star for low energy and five star for five energy. Rather than being like, it's a one star, like that's a shit track or something, it's not, it's, that's totally not like it. If it was a shit track, it wouldn't be in Recordbox yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I go through music every single week for radio, I have numerous folders of every week of tracks, of new tracks that I bring in. Having a radio show keeps me so on top of new music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I've, I've found that's the only way that I kind of need to, to like label it. Like even if I'm I'm finding old records, I still bring it in for that week, um, just to kind of know when I had discovered it or whatever. Um, and if I am playing it on the show, then then great. But if, if it's just going in a DJ set, it still goes in for that same week. Um, so in record they're all organized by. Uh, week. They're also organized like the master. I call them the master folders, which are in record box already, but they're organized by um, maybe the time of the year. I think quarterly. I like to make a brand new house folder, for example, or like a brand new like techno folder, and or, or like a brand new like opening DJ set folder, um, so that uh, there's like certain moods that are all together. Um, but I think that that's pretty standard. I think a lot of DJs do that. Just the genre folders and like energy folders and then if I have played a set that I thought particularly went down well then I'll always look back at the history. I think that's a really nice function that it stores the history um, so you can see what kind of went down well um, and then bring it into its own folder and kind of mark it as like whatever the gig was called. That's That was that star set. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No I do that <laughs> as well. Or those certain <laughs> tracks went well together you're like oh yes I need to play this again and remember it. Back to Bicep in their studio.
3: The way that you approach mixing with records and organising, would you say that that transferred into the way that you play digital now? And do you still play records, or do you just find it easier to keep everything organised in digital?
1: Yeah, I think uh, like when we were playing records, I think we'd have like a... We'd definitely have like a start of the night, end of the night. We'd definitely try and organise it. Two maybe two bags, Yeah,
4: yeah We had a beginning bag and an end bag. So it was like... And you do
1: it together, you'd go yeah, through the Yeah, yeah we'd, we'd go
4: through our records before we went away on tour we would organise all the kind of warmer, deeper, sort of like dreamy stuff at the start. And we'd have that also split into like a disco-y section and then a more housey section. And then the second bag was usually techno,
1: and it was quite, it was, it was a rough version of where we yeah. ended up going. I mean, like that was the Fridays, but Sundays the yeah, the it just It's off. a mess, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> sleeves, yeah, no sleeves. Yeah. We used to actually bring like 20 empty sleeves. Just to get, Every time, yeah. just so we didn't actually leave them on the floor. Yeah, they always
3: get ripped, don't they? Yeah. Who came up with your system? Uh, was it a Very, join, a join? very
4: slowly It was just made better and better
1: Yeah, I think it's like One of those things is like it's The last thing you want to do Is organise your music on a Monday And it was just We kind of forced ourselves To do it basically Because it was becoming We had so much to go through And we're just like We need to start sectioning it off the, And actually working out What we're going to play I think the 1, 2 and 3 folders Kind of changed it In terms of It meant that you could always you, you felt like you could always Dip into some other stuff But you can always Go back to those Core 3 things I think the
4: 1, 2 and 3 One came from Doing these all night sets That were um, like Two Yeah, Xoio. Yeah, yeah. Xoio, and then also doing we did like a whole tour of like seven-hour sets, and like you really, like, you can really quickly wreck the vibe if you're starting to go kind of too heavy two hours into a night. Like you need to be holding off to like the fourth or fifth hour to like start to light things up, and that required really understanding your home. I mean, XOI was probably one of the best things in terms of like getting the grips with like. Us DJing actually longer because we we really
1: were and we, we were we were doing that like an hour about actually actually warranting spending time and there's like three hours of warm up like we could actually every week it was like oh it's your turn to warm up or my turn and we'd spend three hours getting like you know the right cool vibe yeah, so that was so important I love yeah. it we never really get to play that though so it's like it's kind of nice that that gives us a chance to really dig into that area
4: and play a lot of stuff off the blog
1: that like is just like 100 bpm and you would never play
4: almost anywhere unless it's like an empty room like some of this it was that XOI was amazing for that like the first hour was usually completely empty and it was just like just chilling out in your own
3: yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah <laughs> it's like really fun you know they try and not go above like 115 until like one yeah. o'clock and yeah. people be running up going yeah just wait just wait going at like you know 110 bpm it's like you know, you're, you're winning know? yeah <laughs>
3: If there's one thing I've taken away from speaking to everyone, it's the importance of archiving your music library and never underestimating the value of backing everything up. Thank you to Avalon Emerson, Bicep, B-Trace and Errol Alkin for taking the time to speak to me. I hope this has helped you guys as much as it has for me. Here's some final words of wisdom.
5: Back up your shit. Back yourself up because, you know... (laughs) that and I guess a tip would be to like not be afraid of it and it's possible. Probably what you want to do is possible and search online, Google your stuff and yeah just... Get out of the mindset of um, if you're not DJing vinyl, you're not a real DJ. Like I feel like I and many other people like had that hanging over their head for a long time, and it's just like once you can throw that behind you, like there's a world of new stuff that you can do with the DJ sets.
4: You have to make it logical in your own head, yeah. but also it really does depend because it's kind of like because there's two of us playing every week, we had to find a kind of a solution.
7: Approaching radio and a DJ set, I think it's important to keep them really separate. For example, with radio, like even the first hour of my show, because I'm coming off of the back of another DJ, I'm coming off the back of Pete Tong, I always consider that first thirty minutes as like a little bit softer, a little bit slower, you know, it kind of progresses throughout the three hours. Um, with a DJ set, I think I always like to keep in mind the set should be a journey, like it should be um, getting from one point to another. and like trusting yourself to kind of, to take it on your own journey that you would really enjoy?
6: I would say, honestly, like all the records that you take out with you. Much of the time, you don't know what your set's going to be like until you walk into a room and you kind of gauge it. You know, don't feel that you have to have something on your key just because everyone else is playing it. Or don't feel that you have to take countless, countless records out with you. You should just really, just, just be into what you've got, you know, and that way, if you play something on instinct, You're not going to have that moment when you're playing a record and you're just thinking, you know what, this isn't as good as I remember it or anything like that. And I think a lot of what you do in a club, the success of it is probably achieved in your preparation beforehand.
0: Thanks to Moxie and her pals for sharing some insight into the way DJs organise their music libraries. The latest DJ Kicks mix comes from Kerry Chandler, a revered DJ whose artistic identity is strongly linked to New Jersey and New York. The mix is based on the idea of taking a musical walking tour through these places from Kerry's point of view. Max Pearl met up with Kerry to do just that bringing to life the route Kerry imagined when he conceived the mix.
2: Kerry Chandler played his first DJ gig ever in a small city called East Orange, New Jersey, which is about an hour away from Manhattan. In fact, he was opening for his dad, who was the resident DJ at a disco called the Rally Racket Club, and he was only 13 years old. By the late 80s, he was making inroads to the New York scene, getting gigs at these huge nightclubs like Shelter and Sound Factory. Though he was younger than some of the early pioneers like Larry LeVon or Frankie Knuckles, he even got to play at the Paradise Garage before it closed in 1987. So New York holds many of his fondest memories, from the recording studios where he used to work to the record shops that he used to shop at and the 24-hour cafes where they would stop for a coffee between one club and the next. Though he now lives most of the year in London, his new DJ Kicks mix is a tribute to these formative years he spent exploring Manhattan and its outer boroughs. It's supposed to feel like taking a walking tour through the Big Apple. So in keeping with the theme, I met up with Kerry on a rainy afternoon in Manhattan so we could visit some of his favorite spots from back in the day. We'll hear some of the tracks from the mix while seeing what sorts of memories pop up along the way. I am here in the financial district in downtown Manhattan, standing in front of Zucker's Bagels and Smoked Fish, um, waiting for Carey Chandler to hop out of a taxi so we can uh, have a bagel and then he's going to give me a walking tour of his personal Manhattan, so we can get a better understanding of the ideas behind this new DJ Kicks mix. It's all good, good man. coming in here.
8: Hi, okay. How are you? How are you? Good. This is Jeff. How are you? Nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. I'm Max. Good. How are you feeling? Good. Took a, took a minute to get here. I haven't been here in a
2: minute. But yeah. Are you hungry? You want to get a bagel or something? We're walking up to Hudson Street. We're in the financial district. Uh, walking up to Tribeca. I'm here with Carrie Chandler. Um, we're gonna go stand in front of the old Shelter, which he's now telling me was the actually the second edition of Shelter, which was uh, one of the most famous nightclubs of the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, before it all got. Uh,
8: claim closing down because of uh everyone wants to build um housing and this always seems to be the same thing noise and uh people want to build uh, apartments you know so that's that's kind of what was the demise of a bit of it um but yeah it's just this is definitely old stomping grounds over here <laughs> you could take a, this yeah. one over here
2: um can you can you describe what this neighborhood was like you know when you were first coming out here um well new york was um what was it Giuliani? Giuliani
8: kind of cleaned up New York a bit. Um, it became Disney rather than what it used to be, and it was just like it was just pretty much raw, and it was just a place where I mean, this side of town was kind of quiet. Just looking at looking at all the stuff here now, just seeing things
2: that weren't here.
8: But um, like I said, they built it up, and they uh, made apartments out of everything. Looking at this stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, you were saying when you used to come when you used to come down here it was basically just. You were either going to a club or getting in a taxi. There was otherwise no reason to really be down here, right?
8: Yeah, this, there was nothing here. I mean, it's just, I mean, maybe some late night eatery that opened up next door to the club. But, like, if you, there was no real reason to be down here besides, like, you know, partying. It's like, you would never know it was the same neighborhood. I'm walking through here, like, what, what is this? It's an animal hospital <laughs> on the same street. It's like, what, what is this? It's like, it's all turned into uh Wow, neighborhood. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. somebody's neighborhood, may, maybe a little business on the street, but it looks like just a bunch of apartments you would never know. This was the uh, same area. Yeah, it's absolutely kind of a
2: uh, mind numbing to see. Yeah, and this was sort of like a nightlife district. There were a few different things down here, right?
8: Oh yeah, the whole street pretty much. I mean it, it was a lot of underground stuff going on in the street and to see this it's just like wow it's like they, they destroyed my entire <laughs> my entire like uh phew, my all my 20s are gone now that's what, that's what this looks like they just it's like they erased it or something like this whole area looks so different i'm seeing a, like what, walking down here now i'm seeing a, a cat you know <laughs> a caterpillar uh, land digger like they're, they're ready to like rip down some more things that were like historic here or something yeah. it's really really strange
2: so you started DJing when you were like 15, which means you, by the time you were coming down here, were you already playing gigs, or were you just coming to party and listen well, to music? I
8: mean, I used to I used to live about my age a lot, <laughs> coming down here just to see things, but yeah, I've been DJing since I was actually 13. 13. Here, I'll show you something fun. Uh, but my dad used to take me all over the place and my uncles, because they were just party animals, and I wasn't supposed to be in a lot of these clubs I played in, so, and um. I don't know, but they, they just let me get away with with it. And I, there, a few of these places, I could never go into the dance floor itself, but they could sneak me into the booth and I could stay there until it was time to go. So that was their kind of loophole. Uh, let me see. I'll
2: show you. Here we go. So you had to sneak into your own DJ gigs? Yeah. Yeah. Look at
8: that.
2: <laughs> so that's me at 13. Can you describe this photo we're looking at, what's happening here?
8: Um, this is me playing at a, a club called Rally Racket and just warming up for my dad. And we did secondary parties.
2: With that fresh 80s Adidas gear? <laughs>
8: yeah, Adidas, red Adidas uh, shirt and uh, big headphones that are probably as big as my head.
2: When's the last time you rocked a party with your dad? My
8: dad passed away. And, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's, it's fine. My dad passed away earlier this year, well, last year, December. Not last year, but ending, beginning of this year, ending of last year, December. And uh, funny enough, we were actually going to do another party together in February before he, he passed away. He would, he would you know, we were, we were like brothers more than like that was my dad. He was only 18 years older than me. So, but he he still DJed and he still did a lot of things.
2: I remember reading in another interview you were saying you would kind of surreptitiously mix your dad's records, and he had a bike that made a loud noise so that oh. every time he was coming, you would hear the bike noise and you would put away the records.
8: Oh, yeah. No, I I always hear him coming, but he busted me. But thank God he busted me, because I had no idea what would have happened if he didn't. That's what started me on the path of actually warming up for him, because he was like, okay, show me, you know, what you're doing. You you think you're DJing, get down from there. If you, you can DJ, then, you know, show me, and I'll bring you to the club with me. And if you're not, I'm going to crucify you. So immediately, you know, I did everything I could. And he just looked like he had tears in his eyes. And he was just like, you know what? This weekend, we're you're just going to we're gonna put you on a crate. I'm going to stand you in front of these records and just hand them to you and see what you do. And I did. And that was it. And I was hooked ever since. You got the keys to the club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. And I always hated my, when my mother came to the club because she came to come and get me. And I used to try to hide. So I'd run around the club and just like, oh, God, she's coming. I me, I want to stay, you know.
2: I feel like it must—it must be kind of bittersweet because, in a lot of ways, New York has lost so many things, but also right now the music scene is so healthy. Yeah. You know what I mean?
8: No, it is. I mean, in Brooklyn, it definitely blew up again. I'm really surprised and happy. But um, it's—it's it's one of those things where, if—if if you would have told me that that would have been going as long as it did, it, it would have surprised me anyway, because we were trying to create
2: something out of nothing to begin with. So I think we're—we're we're coming up on the the old shelter. These buildings are amazing. I mean, you don't yeah, see I, these... I,
8: that's, that's the reason they took them over and wanted to make apartments out of them. Because it's just, I, I mean, honest to God, I, I don't even recognize it. The only reason you knew it was the shelter is because you could see the logo like it was a shelter, but that was just later. Mm-hmm. But if you knew where it was, it was just that. That was it. You walk up to it, black doors, and you're going in. Yeah, it had that nuclear bomb shelter logo, right? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of of it is i'm curious to ask like uh merlin like how he came up with that idea maybe that's what it was originally maybe some kind of original bomb shelter or something i don't know but but i can definitely tell you that going up there it's like it looks like nothing looks like it was a loading
2: dock so we're walking up to what once was shelter uh one of new york's most historic nightclubs And it is now a...
8: See, this is what I mean. They turned it into an apartment complex.
2: Tell me about some of your, you said it was it was like being home, like it was yeah, sort of family. Like. So what I did was I went in to the shelter, brought some of my gear,
8: and EQ'd it exactly how, for you know, what the club was like. And I just made the song in the club, and that's that was one of my favorite things to do. So whenever you heard the shelter song I made in the shelter, it sounded the best in the shelter.
2: <laughs> I love that the club had its own anthem.
8: Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Not that it was really funny. So later on, they were like, well, we were starting Shelter Records. We want to put this out. I'm like, I'm like, who's going to play a song about another club and another, and, you know, a, a song about another club in a club? That doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. But OK, and it, it, it put it out and it did really, really well. And I was so surprised.
2: And so your first record was but prior to that you had produced for some vocalists, right? Like you were interning in studios, doing some production yeah. work.
8: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it was just me DJing on the weekends and doing edits for myself to go go play. But at that time, I was doing a lot of hip hop stuff, and and uh, my girlfriend at the time, she passed away, and she loved a lot of house music. And I had this thing called "Get It Off," which was short for "Get It Off My Mind," and I made a lot of the uh, songs and things after my life. After that, I found it so you know I could express myself making house music, doing it that way rather than you know anything else and I just said you know what if I had to make a song I'm never going to just make a song because of it. Every song I've ever made has a story about my life and life, life here. We're standing in front of Kim's video right now where Dennis and I used to go crate digging and this place is like it had all of these uh, black exploitation movies and whatever you want to find some really rare crazy stuff in here and they used to have it so they had these bins I don't know how. I mean, it was thousands of everything in here—records and collectibles—and and this was like our little hangout, hideout kind of thing. We go in, and you can get like—we'd back his car up, like right here someplace, and we just go in, and they had records for like a dollar a piece, and we just look at the the really interesting ones and go, "Oh yeah, I don't know what this is. We don't have this," and just load the car up as much as we could, and you know, we were in here like every. Every time I happen to be home from a, from a gig, playing and just dig crate digging and just pulling them out and pulling them out, and you go out with your hands dirty, and they, they knew it, and they used to have wipes on the on the table so you clean your hands up, and you just pack your pack your records and go, and they saw us every like every other week at least, and our ritual was to sit here like at, at home once you got the records and just, oh yeah, that's cool, that's cool, and just mark all the records off and like stuff that like we really loved and things that we could probably sample, and. Um, You know, now look at this, permanently closed. Apparently, Dwayne Reed was here at one point, too. So it's it's really, really strange to, to see this. And I just Googled it just to see, and it's been closed for about 10 years now. I didn't realize. Wow. Yeah.
2: Can you describe where we are? Like, just give us a little, set the scene for us?
8: Well, th- this is kind of one of my old hangouts. I mean, the red line. We just, just, I can't even begin to tell you the stories of that place. That was one of the places we just ate at and just like, you know, vegged and figured out where we were going next. Um, there's another hangout around the corner called the Slaughtered Lamb. We used to go in and just, just have. they have every single beer or, 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 or something on tap special around the corner from here. I am almost want to go and just grab one. Um, just this whole street was just especially in the summer it's just a place we just like haunt we just be here all the time and this is definitely this store this is kind of it feels like someone just took away like a part of my family like anything I could really find that was really crazy things I've never seen in my life were in this store
2: talk a little bit about the mix you know I was giving it a listen this morning Um, I noticed it's it's all old-school disco funk there was even like a Tila rock like 80s rap track there's no you know I was there's no contemporary deep house to speak of on there so can you talk about why you decided to do that well I thought that everybody already heard me mix house and
8: they probably wondered Uh, DJ kicks to me was always one of these things where you can get to really just show what you love and these are the things i grew up with and i wanted to make a a record of what or or just a a mix of what influenced me and yeah this is why we're walking through it now because i really this is what i experienced and this is what i want other people to kind of be inspired by if it inspired me i hope it inspires somebody else to do the same
2: yeah for sure did you did a lot of feelings come up for you as you were picking those songs and mixing them and getting the mix ready
8: oh yeah absolutely especially the first one cool out was one of my dad's favorite records and he'd start the club like that. At his, he, he would start with Cool Out or Killer Joe. You know, because his name was Joseph Chandler, so he, he would start with Cool Out or Killer Joe, and then in the night would just start. So that's why I kind of picked that track. That's the beginning for me, so I figured it should be the, the beginning of the album.
2: Yeah, there's that beautiful track too called New York City Streets. That is just, it's like it's, it opens with just the sound of rain and like cars on the street, and I just thought it was so evocative of the city you know
8: yeah i mean but that, that's just like what it is it's like we just met at the shop and it's just like this is how it is let's just go for a little walk would you like a bagel let's let's talk you know and this is it here this is this is the city this is how it feels this is how it sounds and i wanted to convey that in a big way like all these you know sounds you hear and people talking by and little little things that happen only in new york
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have any memories tied to any of those specific songs apart from uh the Killer Joe and oh, uh.
8: every every song on there has such a specific memory for for what it is. Um, like the the song even right after it, the When Will the Day Come? Um, my uncle, which is my dad's brother, he's a DJ too. So that's one of those days when we were younger and I just go record and crate digging, like, oh wow, look at this record, look what we found, and that was pretty much the record after that. You know, and my uncle, same same thing. I, I absolutely love them and we we just you know he's young he's like the youngest he's the boy in the family so he's closer my age he's seven years older than me but same thing instead of my uncle it feels more like my brother (laughs) is he still mixing yeah my my uncle arnold is still around and he's he's very very you know interesting guy but he lives in um atlanta right now well, coming into the park I'm just noticing that it's like it's not <laughs> a lot more trees. It was a little more open than this. You can see through the park a little bit better. But I'm on the other side of it. But I, I my favorite part is going through and getting towards well, the middle areas. Yeah. And then, then where you Yeah, this is this is it here.
2: Okay, we are now entering Washington Square Park, which if you don't know is one of the parks in downtown Manhattan that has the a replica of the Arc de Triomphe, Absolutely. which is that big stone gateway. Uh, usually there's a lot of salsa musicians here, uh, skateboarders, rollerbladers. That was the other
8: thing I used to do, a lot of skateboard through here. I used to have like my longboard, but then I had my skateboards and i just would go through Manhattan and just run all through here. And then we used to just, you know, trick out and jump stuff and do things all around here. But this whole section around here, this is where I used to sit and watch musicians and people used to just play and talk, talk mad <laughs> and just do what they wanted to do. All of this, and there's, wow, such memories. There's so many memories. But it, this is where everybody came to be an artist, really. And I loved it. Especially the summertime. The summertime is the best,
2: absolute best. It's interesting also, a lot of the acts that you spotlighted on the mix were live acts they were bands like these weren't DJs or people playing drum machines necessarily you know so it's interesting what you said earlier about the fact that at Zanzibar there were a lot of vocal performances that was a big part of it you know
8: and you had to like everybody was waiting to see you perform it was like you had to give your best performance of your life because it was like the Apollo of Newark (laughs) if you messed up there there's no saving you that's how that place was it's like it's exactly there was no it's like Okay, this is that record. Let's see how well you do it. No auto tune, no dancers, none of that. You better perform that record better than it was on that record. Because if you deviated or you did something wrong, you'd know about it. Like in the first two bars. That's that's how Zanzibar was. It was like unforgiving and you get that stink eye. It's just like, it's not going to happen.
2: And then everyone's going to be talking about it the next day. Yeah,
8: immediately. Your records might even come off the shelves. It's like it's not it's not happening. But Tony was really spot on with what he picked and who he thought was gonna be it.
2: So Tony wasn't just the resident but he booked all the, the acts to perform as well.
8: Oh yeah, pretty much. I mean it's him and, I mean it's a whole crew but that was really Tony had the eye on everyone and he, he kinda, you know, had his people in place where he, he knew who was going to do what and you know, who who had a sense of, you know, what he he involved us all in his house you know it was it was our thing it was a Jersey sound but
2: here we are King wow. Street
8: oh my god <laughs> so where is this thing at
2: now it's one block that way I'm
8: going to see the sign the um, Larry, Larry yeah, I think Levan it's at the way.
2: next intersection
8: oh no god that can't be right please tell me that's wrong full demolition construction equipment fence full demolition of two story structure using handheld equipment and partial m- No way they're taking this building down.
2: Really? Paradise Garage building to be knocked down. Oh my god, so that is it. Yeah.
8: How are you gonna make a street named after Larry and then you're gonna knock the building? That's crazy. It absolutely it's it's like wow, it's just you just took part of my life away. Here you go. <laughs>
2: on West 4th Street, which is one of those little windy streets of lower Manhattan that doesn't really go with the grid. Not at all.
8: <laughs> Noisy as New York can be.
2: Yeah. A lot of little bars. There we go. Tic-tac-toe, exotic novelty sex shop. <laughs> Whatever you need. Okay, so we na- are now entering the Slaughtered Lamb Pub, which has an, an illustration of a bloody wolf's head on the mm-hmm.
0: façade.
2: We're gonna descend into the basement of the slaughtered lamb where I think they've just put up all their Halloween decorations. Yeah,
8: what, what you know the funny part is it's like it might as well not have been Halloween. It could be any time of year and it was always kind of like this. This just Halloween is a little more elaborate I suppose.
2: Okay, so what do we got here? Couple skeletons? Pool table?
8: Well, there's a skeleton in this cage. And the funny thing is they're saying they're getting set up for Halloween. This is always here. This is always here. This is nothing new. All of this stuff that's here, It's chains on the wall and all this stuff. It seems like it should be an S&M place or something. But it's, but it's absolutely just one of these you know, old pubs they try to make up after American Werewolf in London. Right. And I mean, all of this stuff, this, is, this isn't new. This is all of this stuff. I don't know what they said they would get. What, put a pumpkin down, maybe? Right. That's it. But otherwise, it's always like this. I don't know. I, I wanna say Slaughtered Lamb was probably one of my favorite places coming down here. Just I, I don't know. I can't say I like a bit of the dark or the macabre, but it definitely helps with being creative in an atmosphere kinda of like that. Because it's very nostalgic for like black and white, everything. We was just walking by a, a electric lady land. And it still blows my mind that, that Jimi Hendrix built this studio, but from what I understand, he's never used it. Uh-huh. And where I found that information was out in um, the Jimi Hendrix Museum, the Jimi Hendrix Experience Museum, is when they told me that. I was like, you're kidding me, I said, he never used that studio, the one that's in New York. And they were like, no, never did. I was like, the studio's incredible. It blows my mind, because it's such an amazing place. There's, there was one other place called Baby Monster I used to use all the time, too. It was vintage, everything, beautiful Neve board. And we used to do all the hip-hop stuff in there. It was like, so, like, why are you using this room to do that? But it was it was one of these rock rooms. But we thought it would be really cool because of um, Rick Rubin. He, he told us, yeah, that's the one we should use. So we're like, yeah, let's just
2: go do that one. Well, he was like a rock guy who converted to hip-hop, right? Yeah,
8: yeah but, I mean, he was, he was always a pioneer. But this comes back to that thing again, music. It's music, it's the, I always always think there's just two types of music. It's good music and it's bad music. You know, I, I, all these genres, it's like, you enjoy it? Yeah, then, you know, if, in case you're just going to hunt for it in a record store, then, then why bother with the genre if you know the artist? Right, right, of course. New Music Seminar in New York and it was over at the Marriott Marquis on the eighth floor and that's actually where I kind of got my start from my real like licensing and starting Madhouse. I met Mel Daly at the New Music Seminar of all places and I, I just licensed this song called My My Lover and I was doing remixes and stuff for Atlantic and RCA and just getting the rap stuff going with Warner and the next thing I know Mel, I told Mel, I said, you know, what? I feel like starting a record label, and this is back in 1992. And he says, you should do it. Come on over to London, and I'll, I'll show you how it's done. And I said, what you can do for me here, funny enough, back on Hudson Street, is run Champion in the States, and we can, you know, we can have a, a relationship that way. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's great. I said, cool. I'll be over to London, and you know, sure as hell, that's when I started it. And I went there, came back here back downtown 161 met Linda and that that was it that's all she wrote and here we are 25 years later but the place I wanted to go to I'm taking you to that's where I met him and that's just where we had drinks the revolving bar all
2: right all right yeah.
8: right yeah, this is um where the new music seminar used to be mm-hmm. back in the 80s early well, early 90s and every year we used to come and it was a here we are this is where we get on. Right. Every year we used to come and meet on this floor and you meet every producer and every record label and everything that was happening you meet so many people like, I remember meeting Ice-T here once early on and Africa Bambada and all these other people and then what happened was it was just, it, they would talk about music and there was different events all over the city and different clubs and you can go to different studios and watch how they did things and I'm going to show you where my favorite part of this is, and I hope is still here. They took it away, and I think they put it back just recently because so many people complain about it. The revolving bar. And what it is, is like you go back there, and you can see all of New York, like all of, all of Times Square. And this thing is set up like a turntable, so you're sitting in it, and you end up on the other side of the room after like maybe five minutes. The whole bar spins. So it's like, a, like you're sitting in the turntable, so by the time you're, you're drinking, you're like, Whoa, <laughs> this is crazy. Why, how did I end up over there?
2: It's slow enough so that you don't really notice it until, yeah, until you've like like done a 90-degree turn. <laughs> yeah,
8: you're on the other side of this thing.
2: Okay, so I just want to explain. We're like 24 floors above Times Square right now, and we're looking out at all of the giant billboards with the LED advertisements and the classic Coca-Cola ads and all yeah, that. Yeah.
8: The, thing the thing that, that used to smoke is gone, but this is cool. <laughs> Well, what happened was, in this area here, there's a revolving bar. And this is where I used to come and just have like, fun drinks and sophisticated meetings all the time. And the music, new music seminar was here. So we'd make all of our deals here. And you'd start one part of the room, like this is the big turntable, this thing would spin. Like, you see what this big thing is here? All of this would spin. And then you'd have these chairs on wheels, and it would just keep moving. For like, for like a good hour, you'd spin around maybe four times.
2: Okay, so the structure of the building didn't spin, but the but internal, the, the floor, yeah, the span. floor, oh, okay, was spinning. Wow! And it
8: had like it was so cool. And if you ever come, get a chance to come back, go to that floor and you'll get to see what it was. Because so many people complained when they took it out of here, that they put it back. Because it was inc- it's incredible. It really is, and it's it's up higher now. And it's a place called the View, but this is this was my view, and we used to come around and see all the stuff on the billboards and seeing the, the the energy from the street and just like watching it and. It, w- it was incredible. It, it still is. I mean, if yeah. you haven't yeah. here, it, but it's, you know, higher up, is probably even better. I'm going to have to come back. And
2: so we just rode uh, we just rode the high-speed elevator yeah. here at the, at the Marriott, which is this kind of like 60s space-age, or like even 50s, I don't know, but like a modernist space-age elevator with the transparent, translucent yeah. walls. What do you think?
8: Oh, that's always been my favorite every time I come here. That's the reason they probably have, like, you have to pick the floor you need to go to. Because we used to ride them all the time when we were like teenagers, but it's 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 incredible. If you if you haven't been, go to the
2: rooftop and definitely take the elevator all the way up and then bring it all the way down. Yeah, this is the spot. You got it straight from the man himself. Do you ever get nostalgic about the the old New York? Mm, mm, <laughs>
8: not not really. No, <laughs> actually no. I mean, I, I just I'm always. Everybody asks me what my favorite time period is. So I still don't have one yet. So that that's how I. Maybe that's what's wrong with me (laughs) because I really don't have a favorite time period. I have moments where it's just like, oh, yeah, I enjoyed it, but it's not my favorite time period.
2: Well, I mean, you don't you don't look back on it romantically, you know, because I think a lot of people wear rose tinted glasses when looking back at the 90s and they forget all the stuff that we want to forget about, you know?
8: No, 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 no. No, I never I never looked at it that way. I was always looking for the next thing. What's going to make it better? And that I never, that's maybe that's my, my reason I'm, I'm so, I am still so energetic about what I'm trying to do. I never looked back at it and said, why don't we have that again? I, I'm like, what, let's, what's next? You know, to me, that's important.
2: You know, it's interesting about this mix that you're doing, though. I feel like you're going to expose a lot of people from the younger generation to stuff they've never heard before. But
8: that's why I did it. Only, I mean, I'm saying it in one way like, I don't get nostalgic. Yeah. But I want them to understand the quality I was listening to. It's, it's not a matter of like, oh, this is better than what you're playing now. This is more like, look at what this is, where I've come from, and, and why I create things the way I create them. And this is why, you know, I want, I want you to have the same headspace I have and, you know, where I, I like to get my influences from. You know, these people, they're real musicians, and they, they took, they, they're, they're incredible people that I've actually aspired to be like. And, I mean, I got to work with a few people on on that same thing, like Roy Ayers, for instance. Mm -hmm. And never in a million years would I ever think that I would even meet the man. But to, to actually know him and work with him, we call him Uncle Roy. He calls me the doctor. So it's like one of those fun things. Every time I see him, it's nothing but love with that man. And that's why I decided the same thing. When I ended the album, I ended it with him because it's like going home.
0: i and Max and thank you for listening. Next month's edition of The Hour will be our Year in Review podcast with a group of RA's editorial staff highlighting the year's key stories and their favourite music and artists from 2017.